This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I called up Mason Bedient to ask him a little bit about his new home. He lives with a bunch of cats and his fiance in Fargo, North Dakota. I just moved here in December, and it's not the best time of year to go out and discover much of Fargo yet. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, moving to Fargo in December takes uh, a little bit of bravery. Bravery or foolishness, I haven't decided yet which one is more my speed. Fargo might sound remote to you, but for Mason, it's the big city. He came here from two hours south, a town of 1,800 people. He was one of just a few trans people there. Where I was in South Dakota was a real small town, which has its pluses and minuses, but when you're somebody in the LGBT community, it has a little bit more minuses on that side. There's one more thing you need to know about Mason. He's a physician. Back in South Dakota, he was one of just two doctors in his town of Webster. And he was one of just a handful of people in the entire state to offer gender-affirming care. I've just been longing, I guess, for more of uh, people who understand me, people who understand my, my situation. And not that there was anything wrong with the people there. They just didn't understand it on the level that I wish I had someone who did. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, about being an out LGBTQ person in small town South Dakota, where people may mean well, but you're also in kind of a funny position, right? Like you're the town doctor, so it's kind of like being like the town priest or rabbi. You like know people's secrets, but then at the same time, you may be different from them in a way, like apart in a way. Like, can you just tell me what it was like to be living in small town South Dakota as an out person? It actually wasn't as bad as I feared that it could be. Now, are there people that probably never came and saw me again or never spoke to me? I'm sure there were. I just don't know about it. Um, But I found that most people were genuinely curious. Just they've never met a trans person before. Some of them have never met a gay person before even. And the other thing I found is it actually brought out a lot of things that I wouldn't have known about people otherwise, because it made them not afraid to tell me, oh, yeah, I have a son who's gay who left 20 years ago and never came back. And we don't talk about him because, you know, we didn't figure the people in this area would understand it. But, you know, since you're part of that community, I feel okay talking to you about it. Even though Mason's community was warm, he could see the way the state was changing around him. A few weeks after he packed his bags and moved north, South Dakota passed one of the strictest bans on medical care for trans kids in the entire country. Today's South Dakota news includes Governor Kristi Noem signing the Help Not Harm bill into law. That legislation. This new law, it actually requires doctors like Mason to stop providing care to trans children by the end of the year. The governor said in a statement, in part, quote, with this legislation, we are protecting kids from harmful permanent medical procedures. I mean, there can be so much hope in moving to a new place. And it sounds like you definitely have that. But I wonder a little bit if you also feel like a bit of a refugee. A little bit. 
I wish the legislation wasn't what it was here as well, and I suppose we're still fighting, so it, it's it's tough to have to keep an eye on these things and always wonder how is it going to affect me, not only professionally but personally, and try to make those moves, you know, think think three moves ahead, I guess, about what we're going to do next and what if this and what if that, and, and have that backup plan all the time. Today on the show, as anti-trans legislation closes in, all around the country, a trans doctor makes his B plan. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight that we can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back. Here is how a trans guy came to be a small-town doctor in rural South Dakota. First, 
he didn't realize he was trans until after he got there. And he moved to the Great Plains from the East Coast because he loved the idea of working in family medicine, treating people of all ages for everything from sore throats to broken fingers. And the place that you can find a job that lets you do that is the Midwest, because it's very much more that old-fashioned doctor style out on the out on the frontier where you're the only one there and you're the only one to do everything. And even, you know, from the very beginning, you you got to know everybody and everybody was your neighbors or like I said you saw them out at the grocery store, you saw them at the clinic, you saw them anywhere you went in town and even if you went the next town over to go to Walmart, you'd run into a lot of people there too. Uh so you definitely got to know people and their families and who they're related to and everybody's business and all that stuff. Yeah, how did you get started on the gender affirming care? Was it something that your community was asking for? So one of my colleagues actually came to me, uh, was maybe a year into my practice, and was asking because she had a patient who uh, was asking about gender-affirming care and where they could go and where they could get that. So it was actually hmm. someone in the community that, that started it. Um, and I looked into it, realized that the nearest place to go was way over near Minneapolis, which was about three and a half hours away from us. And for someone who maybe would have had some difficulty in traveling. I said, well, I can learn to do this. It, you know, I had a little exposure to it in residency, um, knew a little bit about it, had just never done it. So started doing the research, looking into how it's done, going to conferences, that kind of thing, and teaching myself basically how to do this kind of care. Because even if it's just one patient, you know, that's what you do when you're kind of a small town doctor is you provide whatever care it is your patients need to the best of your ability whatever that care might be. That's so interesting. It must have been like you going to this patient and being like, we're going to do this together. Like, we're going to figure it out. It was. And and thankfully, he was willing to go along with it and, you know, be kind of my first patient at this. Huh. And we learned it together and, and things turned out great. At the time, you were living as a cisgender woman, right? Correct. So I didn't realize um, until I got more involved in the community, I didn't realize about myself that I was transgender, um, lived my life being kind of a tomboy at best and um, always felt like something was off, but never had the words for it um, until until I got to know that transgender was a thing and that it was an option for you to pursue the feelings that you had. It wasn't just that you were broken and that was that. So growing up uh, as a teenager, I identified as lesbian because that was basically the word that I had for what I felt, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted a girlfriend and I wanted to be the cutest boy so that the girls would want to date me. And it wasn't until much, much later that I realized that's not a normal lesbian thought to have. Um, so once I got more into the work and more into the community, I realized that it's because deep down I knew I wasn't a woman. I just had never had anyone tell me that that was something that was a legitimate feeling. Um, and it even took me time after I realized that about myself to allow myself to become part of the transgender community because I, I felt a lot like, uh, like I didn't belong there. Like I was lying to myself, to other people that, uh, you know, that this can't be true. It's such a rare thing that why would I be the one person? Do you know what I mean? Um, so it even took me time and talking to a lot of other members of the transgender community before I would allow myself to say, you know what, these feelings that you're having are, are real and they're true and you're allowed to feel this way. It's not something wrong with you. It's not a lie. It just is who you are. 
I imagine that as a doctor, you're kind of used to being in control. But transitioning seems really vulnerable to me. And you were doing it in a small town where a bunch of people knew who you were. What was that like? Well, it was terrifying. Um, you know, you know, especially at first before I had really come out to a lot of people because at first you don't feel the need to because physically nothing's changing very fast. And so you're just kind of telling the people that are close to you and the people that need to know. And I was always terrified that someone was going to notice something and call me out on it. Yeah. You know, especially like the when the little wispy facial hair starts growing in, um, you always wonder, oh, my God, is this person going to say, why do you have a mustache? What's wrong with you? And then COVID came along. And so masks were not the worst thing in the world for me for a little while. Um, But yeah, it was a lot of it was very scary. And then you go through the coming out process. So you tell first your friends and then your colleagues and then, you know, people at large and that battle of do I tell everybody? Do I tell just the people that ask? But the more I did it and the more people reacted well to it, the easier it got. Did you come up with like a script in your head? Like, I'm Dr. Beattie. Like, I just want to let you know some things are changing. Here's what it is. Like, how did it go? So at the time, um, the nurse that I worked with was was really good about that. And she would quite often get a lot of the questions because people were afraid to ask me directly. I was mm-hmm. afraid that people would be mean about it or have negative things to say, but really the vast majority of people surprised me and left it at, yes, I'm transgender and I'm on hormones. And they're like, okay, well, that's fine. Now let's talk about my cold. In the end, how many trans patients did you have in South Dakota? Um, I would guess I had around 20. And some were local and some were coming from as far as two or three hours away, because like I said, there just wasn't much available for care in South Dakota. That's a healthy practice. Um, So that is a pretty, for a town of 1,800 people, for a small practice like I was in, that is a pretty good number. And every time a new one would come in, they would be shocked that, you know, there was this many trans people in South Dakota. All ages, I assume. Kids, adults, whole thing. Yep. How old is your youngest patient? Um, My youngest patient who wasn't on any uh, medication was about 12 um, and hadn't, you know, hadn't started any of the medications yet, was just kind of discussing the journey and getting there. Of course, it is trans kids who have attracted the most attention over the last couple of years, legislatively, at least. In South Dakota, laws about what trans kids can and can't do have really ramped up over the last couple of years. In 2022, Governor Kristi Noem signed a bill that banned trans kids from playing on school sports teams that align with their gender identities, despite the fact that the new rule would only affect a handful of children all across the state. She even released a national campaign ad that touted this bill as one of her signature achievements. In South Dakota, only girls play girls' sports. Why? Because of Governor Kristi Noem's leadership. Noem has been protecting girls' sports. But the law that hit Dr. Bedient most directly passed in just the last few weeks. It bans all gender-affirming health care for minors under 18 years old, including puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and surgery. Supporters have dubbed the law Help Not Harm. I asked Dr. Bedient what he thought about that name. Yeah, so I think calling it Help Not Harm is uh, a little bit hypocritical because all the major medical organizations agree that 
that gender affirming care is helpful for mental health, for physical health, for, you know, it's, that it's good for trans kids to be able to access care. Um, and so by saying that they're helping and by banning this care is kind of flying in the face of what our professional standards tell us to do um, and what the medical community has agreed is helpful. Um, and the other part about it that at least at the time, I think since then more have passed that are similar, but it was the first one to pass that actually forces detransition on kids who are already started on these medications. So if you've started puberty blockers or hormones, you have to stop. If you've started puberty blockers, if you've started hormones, you have until December 31st to be stopped on those because after December 31st, it's illegal for doctors to continue to prescribe. Yeah. It's funny because in the middle of all this, the debate over this bill, which eventually passed, you were considering moving. And I kind of imagine you, this small town doctor, a trans man, you're starting the process of saying goodbye to your patients and your community. And at the same time, there's this very active debate about how to think and talk and legislate around trans people like you. It just seems like that's a lot all knotted up. So I would like to hope that some of the people that I met in town, um, that I changed their mind a little bit on encouraging their own representatives or voting, you know, if, if it were to ever come to a vote, uh, that people would get to vote on, that I've changed the way they would look at it, the way they would vote on things. Um, certainly not everyone in town would would support that. And I did hear a couple of times, oh, but you're different. You know, this is this is different. Hmm. What made you different to them? That you were an adult? Um, probably a little bit that I was an adult and a little bit just your station in, in the community. Um, they look at that very much differently than maybe a, you know, 18-year-old who's unemployed and doesn't know you know, what their next move is going to be in life. I think people gave me a little more standing and that only applied to me personally, not to transgender people as a whole. That must have felt so strange that you had this privilege. Yeah. And at the same time, you know that you're the only trans person that a lot of them have ever and maybe will ever meet. And so you're also very conscious of uh, weighing that on your shoulders too, or carrying that on your shoulders too. Yeah. So if you got pissed off, like that wasn't going to help anyone. But you must have sometimes felt like, ugh, like why can't I get through to this person? And a lot of times I wanted to be more like more vocal about the politics and more vocal about what was going on and even angry about it, like you said. But you have to kind of keep that in check because you still do have that professional persona that you have to uphold. Um, and like I say, just being a good role model for trans people that I might meet being a good role model for cisgender people to say, oh, trans people are not so bad. Um, you know, all of that all at the same time. You were one of only two doctors in Webster, right? Yeah, one of only two physicians. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about that angle. The fact that when these laws pass, there are areas where physicians could leave, healthcare providers could leave, and there may not be someone like lining up to take their place. And, and it's hard. It's very hard to recruit physicians to especially small towns where you're doing everything because I'm the exception and not the rule and that I wanted to do everything. And so, yeah, people are not lining up to come and take these jobs. And it's going to be even less so as the rules get worse. You know, when you're in danger of being sued, when you're in danger of the state bringing a lawsuit against you for something that you did, 
doctors are not going to be lining up to rush to those places to work. After the break, what comes next for Dr. Bedient in Fargo? And could similar healthcare bans threaten his new practice? Dr. Mason Bedient started work at his new clinic in Fargo back in January. Just like he did in South Dakota, he does family medicine with a special emphasis on gender-affirming care. He's busy building up his practice, meeting new patients. But when I checked his website, I noticed something. His bio identifies him not just as Mason. It uses his old name, too, Amy, which surprised me. So I asked Dr. Bedient. Why not sever this connection to his previous identity? So I didn't, I have not and probably will not legally change my name. And so that's the biggest reason for it is that all of my professional work, so my prescriptions, my um, licenses is all under my old name, um, which is okay. Like my old name doesn't bother me. Um, So it's, that's the biggest reason why, but it is also because I don't want it to be a secret. Um, I don't want to live, you know, I don't want to live in secret. Um, I want people to know who I am and who I was and what I've gone through. And if that's something that doesn't appeal to them, fine, they can find another provider. If that's something that does appeal to them where they, you know, helps them even, then I want them to be able to find me. That's really interesting because it's it's funny, you know, we've, we've been trying to talk to a doctor who treats trans kids in particular, but trans people in general for a little while now. And we found it difficult because so many providers are worried about being targeted by hateful people. Do you think about that at all, too? That kind of goes back to the braver, foolish question from the beginning. Um, I <laughs> I have not yet decided which I am, um, but I, I guess part of me worries about it. But at the same time, I feel like it's more important to be out there for the people who need me than to be afraid. Dr. Bedient feels like North Dakota's trans community needs him now more than ever. That's because his new home state is just a few steps behind his old home state when it comes to anti-LGBTQ legislation. The legislature is considering laws that ban drag shows, prohibit sexually explicit material from public libraries, and, yes, ban gender-affirming care for trans kids. Yeah. And I do have people that, you know, a couple of patients already have expressed some concern for, you know, what do we do if these laws pass? How do we proceed from there? And I don't have all the answers yet. Um, my you know, plan A, my my first hope is that we can get these bills defeated and not have to worry about it. But there are plan B and plan C as well uh, in the works. And you know, hopefully we'll never have to find out what those are, But but I'm keeping them in my mind just in case. But there's several still working their way through the through the legislation, um, drag bans, gender affirming care bans, and I believe at one time there was one that even went up to age 26. Although I believe that one was withdrawn uh, in favor of the one for up to 18. A ban on care for adults for up to age 26. Yes. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting to me because for the last year there's been a lot of concern about children. Right. Mm-hmm. And like youth and making decisions too young. But then you look at bills that really talk about getting rid of care for people who are fully adults. And it, it seems like a real 
shift and a change to me. And I think for those of us who have been involved in the politics of it, it's not a surprise to see them shifting this way. Uh, I don't think it has ever really been about protecting kids. Um, I didn't say earlier, but in South Dakota, there was uh, a motion brought when they were passing this bill that, or there was, there was at least conversation about if you're saying the only health care that trans kids can get is mental health care, why don't we add to this bill that that mental health care must be covered then by all insurances, by Medicaid, by state insurance, and that got shot down, basically. So your point is like it's not about getting the right kind of care. It's not about protecting kids, because if it was about protecting kids, you would want to do whatever you could to make them safer. And, you know, mental health care makes them safer. We know that it decreases the suicide risk. Um, And yet you're saying, no, we just want to ban this care and also not pay for this other care that, you know, has no side effects and has no permanent uh, effects or whatever their argument is against the medications. Um, We don't want that either. We don't want that care either. It's, it's always been about banning trans people. Um, I think children was just the foothold that they could get to start. And now they're going to keep pushing it to see how much further they can get. I wonder if you've ever had a family come to you with a kid who wants to talk about transition and the family just isn't there yet and how you sort of helped them with that really delicate moment. That happens a lot, especially in this part of the country. Parents are maybe not ready for a lot of that to happen. And, you know, the the, the truth of it is minors are indeed under, you know, under the decision making of their parents. And if the parents are not on board, none of us are are giving the kid care without permission. Um, but the biggest and most important part of all of this is the mental health care and you know, I do the medical part, but that's really very secondary to everything that goes on beforehand, which is the, the mental health evaluations. Because for these kids, if we're following the best practice uh, standards, which we should be, we're looking at six, eight, 12 months of counseling, of therapy, of mental health evaluation to make sure that, you know, that this is not just something that's a, that's a passing idea and that we've worked through all of their other issues, depression, anxiety, whatever other mental health diagnosis they might have before we ever get to my portion, which is the medical portion. What made the difference with a family like that to get them through that anxious feeling of like, oh my gosh, my kid is not going to be who I thought they were? I think the biggest thing is time. Um, You know, the more they see that that this is not a phase, that this is something that their kid has really thought about and, uh, you know, really, truly, honestly feels. And I think the the counseling helps, you know, family therapy, family counseling, having somebody to talk that through with, because it is scary as a parent, I'm sure that, you know, your child is not who you always thought they were and in a place that that's not friendly for, um, you know, you're scared for them, you're scared for yourself. Uh, and so it's always good to have that outside voice to talk to, you know, talk through what are we going to do if, what are we going to do when, and and have that plan. I think a lot of parents feel better when there's a plan. You seem like a really chin-up kind of person. Like you, I don't know if people would call you an optimist, but you seem like you are determined to get through this. Does that 
determination ever falter? I don't think anyone would ever call me an optimist um, <laughs> because I am not, you know, I'm, I'm generally not a look on the bright side kind of guy. Uh, but I have to stay determined in this because I think the alternative is just breaking down and giving up. And so I have to stay believing that things are going to get better and, and that ultimately the just thing is going to happen, uh, that the right thing is going to happen. I have to stay believing that things are going to change for the better, even if they get worse in the short term. Dr. Bedient, thank you so much for joining me, coming on the show. I'm really appreciative. Yeah, you're welcome. Dr. Mason Bedient is a family medicine and gender-affirming care specialist in Fargo, North Dakota. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support what we do is to look into our membership program, Slate Plus. You get all kinds of great benefits like ad-free podcasts, including this one, and all access to Slate.com. Go on over to Slate.com slash WhatNextPlus to find out more. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. 
Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.